This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. checking my screen to make sure that I don't uh, freeze as I make this joke. But for once, Will, you might be the one who's freezing in the middle of the show. Are you safe from the storms? Do we have any tornadoes hitting you? What what are we dealing with here in Arkansas? Uh, thunderstorms because the heat is, you know, Mother Nature tries to kill us in a variety of ways here, just like everywhere. <laughs> We, we 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 have the heat down here. I don't know. We've got we've got two two from LA. How how hot is it now? I, I mean, it it, it is LA. in the low eighties today. Oh, um, oh, you you poor baby. Are you are it, you okay? But, well, it's, it's like it's like it's like ninety nine here, and I'm like, oh, it's finally cooling down a little. Yeah, but we had a cold front up until last week. It was hard. <laughs> All right, guys. That's the it last was, you're going to hear from was... Charlie Stickney and Stephen Prince tonight because now I'm pissed off. You had a cold front in July. It oh, was, you lucky like seventy. It was like 70 to 75 up until like last week. It was horrible. You know what? We, we I'm, I'm very hard. <laughs> Go ahead, Charlie. Uh, well, I was going to say it was, it was actually there was a couple of days where it was like 68 in the morning. It was. So it was, was, it was a little time. chilly there. I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to choose to forgive you for this reason. The ground opens up and swallows you where you live. So you deserve 70 degrees in July. So um, now now we've got some Californians. we got a Floridian. we got uh, a, a, boy, a boy from Arkansas in, in the storms. Ed, my intrepid friend from across the pond, 
you are up at what time in England? Uh, so it's currently 4.04 a.m., but I had to set like five alarms between 3 and 3.30 to make sure <laughs> I was definitely up. Yeah, I, uh, over here, the weather more tries to kill you by, I don't know, raining on you a lot. Like, yeah. it's like it's trying to drown you, but also the drainage is too good for it to drown you. So the weather just keeps keeps going, keeps going. That's, well, if, rain, lots if, we, rain. if we had a trophy for the bravest uh, part of Explain Yourself, you would win this week for getting up. And we will you, let you go first in case you want a quick uh, nap afterwards. But I'm, I'm good. I, I, I'm more the insomniac type, which, uh, although I admit I look worse than usual looking at myself on camera right now. So you're just going to forgive the fact I look like Will and I have not been models for a while, if ever, so we're going to forgive how anybody looks on camera, and uh, we're going to get into a 30-second pitch on all of the campaigns, just kind of like if you were at a comic convention, uh, how would you get somebody's attention to your book? And I, I, we had a couple moments before the show. We've got two creators going to San Diego Comic-Con next week. So, Stephen, uh, this is your chance to warm up and practice a bit. If yeah. I was running past your boot, wait a second. Wait, they won't be going to movie panels. So maybe they will slowly walk by the comic <laughs> booth because Ben Affleck isn't right. there. Um, how would you get their attention? They they canceled so many panels and signings today. Uh, it's pretty nuts. It, I'm listen, sorry, sorry for the people going, but I'm so happy for you. It's I'm happy <laughs> for me too. I it's simple. It's a matador who fights kaiju monsters. A post-apocalyptic kaiju throwdown about a matador who who fights kaiju monsters to make a better world for his daughter. If matador fighting kaiju monsters doesn't do it for you, I don't. I got nothing. <laughs> you got nothing. <laughs> you need to find something. Inside Sometimes when that. the concept is that strong, you know, yeah. just just just. <laughs> This is what it is. Deal with it. Charlie, uh, I believe this is not about insomnia, uh, how I slept my way through a freshman year. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, a, it's, a, it's about a young woman uh, who's a freshman journalism student who uncovers what she thinks might be the scoop of a lifetime when she finds out one of her professors is running a high-end call girl service using some of the students at the school as escorts. And then she has to figure out as she starts befriending these students kind of what to do as she can maybe ruin their lives. But is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I, you know, there's also a little bit of a mystery with a missing girl. And so she's trying to uncover that and maybe getting herself into some danger. I like to say it's um, a little bit of um, how to get away with murder if it had a three-way with um, the girlfriend experience and house of cards. Nice, nice. And, <laughs> all, and Ed, all you need so is three-way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Stephen's here Sold. just to he 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 just takes it and concentrates it. And, that's right. <laughs> uh, puts it out there. Remake sold. You know that's yeah. it. Ed, uh, so so take us down in in thirty seconds on Lobo, and then we'll, we will actually start on the deep dive with you. But if I was coming past you at uh, what's I guess I'll just say Lon is it London MCM? Am I remembering that right? Uh, well done. That's that's good. Yeah, yeah. MCM Comic Con. Yeah, that's the big one here in here in the UK. Um, so I'm I'm in great company because uh, I believe that comics should be able to tell any story. You should be able to not just recycle the same stuff over and over again. Uh, mine's a superhero comic. Um, it's actually the second comic in a series, but 
it's nicely standalone. So imagine a world where you know the the enough people are superpowered that you've got these superpowered criminals who are beginning to rise up and take over the criminal organizations. And imagine that you've got someone who wants to fight back against that but does not have superpowers. Well, this is Lobo. Um, he's not much of a tactician. He's really not very Batman. He's more the kind of person who will walk into the situation and then figure a way out of it on the fly, usually some combination of luck and, uh, well, good fighting skills. That helps. Anyway, he um, got rather pasted in his last adventure, and uh, in this adventure, he's gone to look for some help, which he finds in the form of a, a new ally. Um, unfortunately, his opponent, the uh, uh, Santa Muerte, is... Um, She's progressed her plans in the meantime. So, uh, you know, it's a very, it's a boiling point moment uh, that you're going to step into and you can very nicely step step in media res. So, so you basically, you've got a guy who jumps out of a plane and starts trying to build his parachute on the way down. That That is more or less, <laughs> more or less exactly what Lobo is like, yeah. See, and, Stephen, and I can, that, I can jump on your stuff too. He'll succeed. <laughs> <laughs> He'll succeed well, in building that parachute on the way down, nice. even if it means that, oh, actually, I just realized I could use my T-shirt as a parachute, <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> so we got Joey Galvez in the chat. Hey, Joey, how are you tonight? And Charlie uh, McKelvey, uh, it's elevator pitch. Yes, yeah. we always start with the elevator pitch because it's always going down on Explain Yourself. And, well, I on Charlie's uh, book more than others. But, I was going to um, say. <laughs> let's uh let's let's check your page out let's check out lobo and while while i pull up the page um so how did you get your team together and where did the the concept come from on a creative standpoint so i'm actually been working on comics for a little while now uh, about 10 years um and um lobo is is one of the characters i created quite early on so it's, it's worth saying that I come from a background of not making comics first. Um, I started with tabletop role-playing games. And uh, what I did is, is I created my first tabletop role-playing game, a sci-fi game. And one of my team, one of my writing team on that said, Hey, Ed, <clears throat> I do a lot of comics. Uh, a good friend of mine, shout out to Jonathan Lewis, uh, sign aid. Um, he said, Ed, uh, I, I, I realize that, you know, you know nothing about comics and, and you think all comics have to be, you know, have to be superhero comics, but we should make some sci-fi comics. So we, we went ahead, we wrote some sci-fi comics. Uh, we've written seven sci-fi comics to date. And then he said, Ed, you know what? Uh, you could just make a superhero role-playing game. Sorry, get the light right there. That's uh, that's that's Era the Empowered, my superhero role-playing game. Um, and from that, and I'm pretty sure this was his ulterior motive all along, we started making comics within that same universe. So the idea is that, you know, the comics expand the world. They give you some, some more information about what some of the major temple characters are like. Um, some of them, you know, uh, Lobo is actually a favorite of, of one player in particular who often frequents uh, games I run at, at role-playing conventions. Um, and uh, so Lobo, you know, he he was about the fifth out the door, about that. Um, 
uh, that image you've got right there was actually the uh, the the last image of the previous comic. Um, he uh, he got he got defeated quite badly by his uh, by his opponent because he went in with with no real plan and just an expectation that he'd win because normally he does, and um, he realised that that's that's not going to cut it this time. You know, it's been working well so far, but he's he's going to need some help. Um, he doesn't think he needs a plan. He just think he he just thinks he needs some help. Okay. Um, and um, uh, this is uh, this is Santa Muerte in her in her uh, human mode. Uh, she's called Cora, um, and she's got uh, she's got the superpower that allows her to manipulate her bones. Um, not dissimilar to Bayonetta, if you're a fan of those games, uh, but more the bones than the hair. Uh, so you know she um, she likes the whole um, bone arms coming out of her back and skewering people and that sort of thing. So uh, so, just, so mm, this isn't makeup on the face. This is her bone. Like this is the... her bone. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know she she puts a lot of effort into being sort of visually impressive for the sake of uh, intimidating various others involved. Um, so yeah, uh, Lobo. As I as I sort of explained in the elevator pitch, um, he's he's quite quite audacious. He he genuinely believes he can free the city. Well, it depends how much you believe her, but uh, she explains that she also wants to rid the city of the drug cartels. She's just not an idiot in her mind. <laughs> you know, he, he's going out there and blowing stuff up and and smashing people up with hammers and whatnot. And, and, and she's like, you're really dumb and this won't work. What you need to do if you want to rid the city of the drug cartels is get inside, mm-hmm. get to the top, and then eliminate it from the inside. Now, he's not even sure whether to 100% believe that. Is she just saying what he would like to hear or is she telling the truth? At, at, you know, at the beginning of this comic, he's not 100% sure, but he's... He's sort of on the side of well, you're you're in the drug cartels and you're at the top, and not only that, you're trying to take over more. I'm kind of feeling no. I'm kind of feeling that I don't believe you. Yeah. But uh, there are, there are plenty more adventures to come, and um, uh, it, some of their stories are covered in the role playing game. So you get uh, sort of some people already sort of have a glimpse of where it will go eventually. Uh, I never entirely resolved that story within the role-playing game about Lobo and the, and, and uh, uh, I call her the Empress of Bones in uh, in the in the book, but she's not being referred to as that yet in the comics. So I've got a question. It just it comes up like it's a Kickstarter campaign. And I can get a comic. Could I, if I was a role player, could I pick up that role-playing book within the campaign as an add-on? So yeah. it's not within the campaign as an add-on. Um, I. I I added it for a while and I found that it, it was considered a bit cloying, but there is a link to it on the Kickstarter okay. to uh, go to our store and get hold of it. You can get it digital, uh, paperback or hardback. So um, yeah, you can, you can grab it. Absolutely. I, 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 I think people felt like a bit forced, a bit more forced into it than I wanted them to be. You, sh- you can enjoy the various aspects of this separately. You know, we've done, we've done audio dramas, we've done comics, we've done the role-playing game. We've done, uh, what else have we done? Oh well, yeah. Um, I uh, I am just putting the finishing touches on a movie in this universe. Um, just a short uh, fifteen minutes or so. Um, so 
each of those should be able, you know, it's part of my design philosophy that you should be able to enjoy everything independently. You don't need mm -hmm. to see one thing to understand the others. You know, you, you don't need to know everything about the universe in order to go in and read the comics or, or vice versa. Um, and as a result, I don't want people to feel like they're forced to go and look for the other stuff. It's more like, oh, you're interested in more. I see a universe as like a house, right? So, you know, if you want to play the role-playing game, you know, you're going to open the door and walk in. And mm -hmm. in theory, you could explore, explore the entire huge mansion. In reality, you're going to explore, you know, a few rooms on the first floor because that's how far it goes. Uh, I, I think of a comic like looking in a window, right? You can see a specific thing that's going on in that particular place at that particular time. Sure, yeah, great. You can have a really good story. You can have a lot of fun. An audio drama, I guess, to uh, extend the metaphor, is uh, listening up against the wall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so can I ask, as somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience with role-playing games, are the, are the writing muscles similar, or is it a different, uh, is a different muscle that you're using to create a role-playing game in this universe and a comic in this universe? I think the main difference is only if you... Uh, so the, the guys obviously already gave their elevator pitches, and for the most part, they center around one main character. And obviously, if you're in a role-playing game, you've got six people around the table, one person can't be the main... You, you just can't you can't run it that way. Everyone else feels a bit a bit slighted. So mm. if you write a true ensemble cast, you know, if you're if you happen to be Joss Whedon and you write you write that stuff as standard, then yeah, it's pretty similar, but but most people don't write that way because it is it is hard. Hmm. Um I think I think there are therefore slightly different muscles. There's also when you're when you're writing a role-playing game session, you don't need to fill in all of the story because the characters will do that for you. Um, one of the things I like doing with role-playing games, if you don't mind me going off on that slight tangent, yeah. I, I, like... I just I just want you to explain yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's fair <laughs> enough. That's fair enough. Um, I, I like running the same session again and again with different groups. Uh, you know, you, you'll get one person who, you know, um, finding a water-form person in a pond. You know, you, you go you go look for her and you, you try and talk her out. And then the next group, the big bear form, you know, a druid who transforms just pees in the pond. <laughs> you know, she, she's coming out, right? She's not staying in there. Um, so, you know, you, you get the players to give you some fun plot points that, that sort of work at the table and you're able to move the story on in a collaborative way rather than everything being on you as a writer. So when you're setting up a role-playing game session, you, you much more look at how do I enable action or enable creative problem solving here? Whereas when I'm writing comics, I, I, I do that first bit as well, but I also then go on and do, okay, well, and what's the character going to do in that situation? Yeah. Char mm -hmm. Character walks confidently into a building and decks the two security guards. This is from Lobo. Mm. Um, walks into the next room and accidentally realizes he walked into the cafeteria, which is absolutely full of full of people. Mm. And he's like, "Ah, oh, damn it!" <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's it's you know, how does he then resolve that situation? Well, that's on me. But if the characters had done that, that they they might decide to talk their way out, or they might decide to try and fight their way out, or or whatever stealth you know pretend mm -hmm. oh yeah uh wrong turn don't worry about it and just walk yeah. away um <laughs> and that's then their choice rather than your choice as the writer gm mm -hmm. right that's interesting 
So this is issue two. Um, if this goes on as long as you can write it, is there an end in sight or uh, what are you thinking? So again, thanks to this, um, basically what I'm doing right now is I'm playing around in what I call event zero. We haven't even started the story story. So one of the things I think about role-playing games, and, and it reflects on the comic universe, is you should be able to... Uh, I started with my sci-fi game because I got sick and tired of having to buy Star Trek, Star Wars, Firefly, Farscape, you name it. All of the role-playing games uh, I wanted to play, they were all separate games. They were all 50 quid books. It, it, it was really, really annoying. So what I said is, no, 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 no. I'm going to do every subgenre of sci-fi and you just dip into the history where you want to go to get your subgenre. So, you know, you want to do Starship Troopers. Oh, you hop in here. Right, fine. Um, I sort of, I, I extended that to the Empowered Universe. So I said, okay, look, um, let's start with uh, villains try and recruit the heroes. Okay, fair enough. You know, we've got powers emerging. Villains go, you should join us because... And then you go to, well, Atlantis attacks because Atlantis always attacks. So we give them a reason to attack, and, and then Atlantis invades. Um, and then we've got, you know, team-ups, and we've got bigger bigger groups and bigger enemy groups and so on. And then you've got the old gods return and uh, claim, you know, the world, and the heroes are just kind of like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, gods from mythology. Um, and then we've got the Assassin's Guild, and then we've got the Empowered Department, where, you know, the government takes over and they run all the Empowered. And then finally, we've got this giant space monster that's actually been coming the whole time and that's the whole reason the villains exist uh the the reasons the villain exist sorry the villain arrives from an alien world and arrives from the alien world because that alien world is destroyed by this monster and goes right well how do i make the heroes as strong as possible i make a really strong villain team because the heroes will always rise up to overcome those villains right so he can propose to as many heroes as he likes that they join them they might say no, fine, whatever. But at the end of the day, his harbingers will then keep fighting them, keep pushing them harder, so that when this monster arrives, they're in the best possible position to fight. He's just sat there going, right, I'm the mastermind behind this. This is working. So, you know, even when his villains lose, he, he's he's not minding. Right. Now, Lobo and the Empress of Bones are not directly involved in this for the most part. Lobo is not empowered. The Empress of Bones is a criminal. Um, So... Uh, although she doesn't very much like an old god appearing and uh, trying to take over her, uh, her, her street corner, uh, basically. I imagine, you might Im <laughs> yeah, I imagine you might expect. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's there's loads and loads and loads, and I, I've written uh, so far. I'm I'm coming up to 25 comics within event zero, and there are seven events, uh, not including event zero, so there are eight in total. You so, know, the, the only writer crazier than you is Charlie Stickney. I, I, one, one time he told me how long White Ash could go, and I just looked at him like, Will and I are dumb, but you're crazy. <laughs> I represent that remark. Wait, yeah. <laughs> well, that is great. Uh, I, I want to wish you luck, and I hope you can hang with us. But really, uh, honestly, if I'm you want to go back to I'm bed. I'm here to hang. It's not okay. a big deal. I'm up now. <laughs> so uh, I, I I brought up Charlie. So so let's get let's get into the steamy uh, the steamy one. Um, so this is issue two of how I slept my way through uh, freshman year. Is that is that what it is? I so how I slept, slept my way, way through, through college. college and other tales of freshman year. 
Gotcha. I like to have a nice, as, as Stephen was saying, I mean, I guess three-way would have been a shorter <laughs> yeah. title. But uh, I mean, like, I'm, I'm trying to pay, I pay by the letter. And I want to spend as much as possible on, on the logo and title sequences. <laughs> I get you, you so, get your value through Charlie. Any, I, anything I that works. So, um, yeah, go, go ahead. Well, I just basically, um, is this the same artistic team and, and how you, you told me about this, you know, for issue one, but, uh, I don't remember what I did this morning. So um, who is the team behind this and how did you get them together while I pull up the page? To, to be fair, I don't remember what you did this morning either. I, and I have people sending me reports. So, you know. I do apologize. <laughs> I remember sending you my whole journal and that was like not very right. It I'm was sorry. a much. It was a lot. Yes. It was a lot. Um, you know, um, yeah. So it's the, the team is and I'm going to use, you know, I think one of the wonderful things about working with international creators is you can access talent from all over the globe and you can get to know them by email. The flip mm -hmm. side is sometimes you just have your own idea of how you pronounce their name. And so, you know, like, and so like I am living with uh, Emiliana um, Pina. I, mm -hmm. I'm going to go with that. I'm going to say uh, okay. she is wonderful. Mm -hmm. She's doing a bunch of stuff for Dynamite right now uh, that, that she's been doing for the last year and a half. Uh, Derbala Kelly, who is a colorist out of Ireland, uh, and so I, I've been working with the two of them on, on this, this series. Uh, when you were talking about like how long things can go, this is slated to be a, a closed series. It's about 12 issues long. Um, but, uh, you know, it can be broken into two, you know, tangible trades that uh, each have their own kind of self-contained story. Because, because it is a little bit of a mystery and it's a thriller. Uh, and, you know, like, like I was saying before, the, the quick pitch is it's about this young student, uh, Stephanie Green, who comes to this, this high-end liberal arts uh, Ivy League college and, and stumbles onto the fact that there may or may not be a professor who's running um, an escort service using some of the students as call girls. And, and, and so, you know, the stuff I've done before, like White, White Ash, Glarian, um, you know, the game, that it's high fantasy, it's grounded fantasy, it's science fiction. I, I kind of wanted to flex some different muscles and, you know, way back in the day, I came from the perspective of writing romantic comedies. And I really just love the, the, the interaction between different types of characters. And so, you know, I think for a lot of us, college is that time when we go to figure out who we are. And, um, you know, and some of that's sexual, some of that is professional, some of that is just growing into, you know, what kind of things you want to be when you're an adult. And so, you know, like, so I think that time in college is fascinating. And then just sort of adding a little bit of this, you know, this flavor to it um, to, to make it more interesting and to, to create an adventure and a story that gets um, a, a chance for all of these um, women to interact. And, um, you know, like Ed was saying earlier, I mean, I think, you know, I, I pitch it as, you know, it's Stephanie's story. But as, as you know, each issue kind of opens and it's it's focusing on a little bit more on one of the different women. And we have a lot of time jumps. And we're going to see some flashbacks about who they were before. And, and so for me, it's, again, it's really fun to be able to sort of flex those muscles of um, trying to, you know, un, you know, lay out a big, long mystery and mm -hmm. see how it plays out and keep the readers engaged. And, um, you know, I do a lot of that with White Ash with lots of twists and turns, but this is a different kind of thing. It's, it's, um, it's more, um, it doesn't have the same kind of pace to it. You know, we're not on an adventure story. There's not a monster that you have to fight. There's not, 
you know, like at the end of the thing, you know, you're breathing a sigh of relief because everyone lived um, and, you know, the characters got together. This is, you know, what piece of the puzzle is going to be unveiled in, in, in this episode, um, in, in this uh, issue, what um, next piece of um, the character traits are going to come out. And they also going back to like Lost. I mean, I think, I think for a lot of us who are, are writers now, um, when that show came on the air, it was very formative just in the way uh, that it broke up the narrative of characters and you had you know, your perception of who you thought they were and then they would play with that perception and then they kept twisting it. And so I, I think like some of those narrative tropes are really interesting. And so I was trying to do a lot with that as well. So can I ask as you're, as you're kind of, you're coming up with this concept, uh, which came first, the set of characters or the mystery? Uh, I, I would say, the, the, the way I write is I off I go plot first. And so I will, you know, figure out, you know, the loose plot. And then I go back and start thinking about what characters are going to exist in that world best to serve that plot. Mm -hmm. And then as I develop the characters, that then affects where the plot's going to go. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like back and forth. But initially, I usually have like a log line or an idea um, for, for like the world. And um, I'll loosely sort of, okay, it needs to have these parameters. Who are the people that best play with that? And then that affects. So I, I go back and forth, but I think the core is usually just that, that one idea that, that, you know, the concept of, you know, we're going to set it, you know, at this college, but, you know, let's think about um, these liaisons as, as ways to explore, not really just um, different aspects of their personality. So even though there might be some sex in this, this is not a sex book. And I think mm -hmm. that's kind of important. Um, it's, it's just as much like that sex is part of a human experience. It's not explicit. Um, you know, there's a little bit of nudity occasionally in the book, but that's, you know, we don't have nude covers. We, it's, it's not a gratuitous book. So if that's what you're looking for, that's not what we have. So, you know, you mentioned 12 issues and I, I find this very annoying that you'll you'll decide to do, oh, hey, this is a 32-page issue. Oh, I'm just going to make this issue 54 pages. Oh, why don't I go 60 on this one? How many pages are we actually talking about with this thing? <laughs> I mean, your 12 issues would be somebody else's 24, potentially. It, it, it could be. It could be. Like, yeah, the first issue was 32 pages. This one, this one was a little bit shorter. It was 24. I was trying to wrap it up a little bit. That's like a five-page uh, um, anthology for you, a 24-pager. Yeah. yeah, I know. It was, it was a quick – I just kind of knocked that one out. Um, yeah, like, I, like in this oh, – so if you scroll back for a second, I think this is – you know, and I think one of the things that I love about your show is you're, you're seeing what different Kickstarter creators are doing um, and, and ways of pitching their projects, um, the kind of projects people bring to Kickstarter. This was something that I tried this time, and it's been really successful. So, Ed, this is a um, cosplay cover featuring the women of the school as different characters from my other books. Oh, um, that's, that's and, brilliant. Yeah, and, and like the thought was that even if some of my other backers weren't fans of this kind of series, because like I, it, in terms of like the popularity, like my other series are a lot more popular, and that's hmm. kind of what you expect. You have some things that are big hits, some things that attract a smaller crowd, but I thought a way of getting more eyes on this was to kind of bring those characters into this universe in a way that felt organic and understandable. So uh, one of the women is actually a comic book fan. Glarin is her favorite. There's actually a little bit in the book where she goes into a comic book shop and, um, you know, 
And some of my friends will see that their books are actually featured in the background of that comic book shop. Um, so you know, like Wait, everyone watching is now just going, Oh God, I hope it's me. I hope it's me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. We'll find out. We will find yeah. you like it, it was one of those things where I, I asked a couple of people if they wanted to put some things in and then I gave it to the artist and let her play with as as she felt things that would, uh, you know, fit the background. But I, I think it's it's always good for us to try to find ways to engage our audiences and see if we can get kind of, um, you know, ways to energize them from campaign to campaign, mm -hmm. because especially for those of us who have done this a lot um, and are going more, from series to series to series as opposed to issue to issue within yeah. a series, right? But, but even like even even for you, Kevin, when you're doing Tart, I think it's about ways to keep the people who who read it engaged mm -hmm. and bring in new people, right? right? And so you know, like we we've done, you know, we have all done the thing where we do the cross promos with other people, and then I think mm -hmm. sometimes that got a little bit too bloated, and it just became white noise. Um, I think the other thing I try to do is I'm, I'm doing now is because I have all these other series, I will pick one of my other series and I'm giving away the first issue of that as one of the base rewards with any campaign I do to hopefully get them, you know, people to read it and to be hooked, but also add a little bit more value to base here. Um, so, you know, Charlie, you've, you've worked with um, a lot of- I'm very tell this story, um, but it's also about trying to find the synergy to attract as many of my backers to this as possible and also bring in new eyes that in turn I can then bring over to White Ash and Glarian in the game. Right. Yeah, and, and you've worked with uh, a lot of artists on these uh, doing, you know, variant covers. Um, but kind of the, the constant that we have is, is Connor. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's kind of a fairy tale that I just love. Uh, I mean, you, <laughs> can you tell us how you met Connor? I mean, I, I've sure. heard the story, but I, I think the readers would, I mean, the listeners would like to hear it too. Sure. And and for anyone who's, who's, you know, Connor is the letterer. He's also my partner in White Ash. He is the art director of White Ash Comics. Um, so like everything that I do, I, I do in concert with him. Uh, and um, when I kind of came to comics about, six or seven years ago it was more about seven years ago and i'd like to say came to or came back to because when i was mm -hmm. in high school i was planning to go into comics when i was in college i was planning to go into comics and then kind of got shifted into film and then got a job offer in los angeles and so it sort of took me about 20 years to get back to comics mm -hmm. um and i've been having a ball the last seven years um but right off the bat like when i was getting white ash started i, I put an ad out on um I think it was Reddit and um, Connor reached out to me and Connor had gone to the school of visual design. He had kind of like decided rather than trying to make it as a comic book artist, he was going to get a real job. And so he became the in-house graphic designer at the UN in New York. And so he was doing that for his day job, which was incredible. Um, and then he tried the Mark Millar talent search and he was the winner for the one, like the very first time they did it, but they, paired him with a good colorist, but it wasn't a colorist who was a fit. And I think all of us know how trying to find the right colorist to work with the right artist can be very dicey. And it just, it just wasn't a good match and I didn't showcase what he did. Uh, and so he just kind of faded off. And then he found me and we started doing White Ash and he is just, you know, he is incredibly talented. He's incredibly kind. I love working with him. I love working with everyone. I've, I've been very 
fortunate with uh, with him or with Romina Morinelli, with um, you know Triona Farrell, who does the colors on the game. Um, I mean, Finn Cram. I mean, like I I have yeah. an incredible team. Um, but but Connor, I mean, Connor's it actually coming out this Wednesday of San Diego Comic Con is his cover for The Walking Dead. You know, he's doing a six issue series of connecting variant covers for The Walking Dead. And I, I feel like Kirkman's going to try to poach him. And so, you know, Stephen, <laughs> if you see me rolling on the floor in a bare knuckled fight with Kirkman, it's probably over Connor. Um, You're not going to fight him. You'll fight his security. <laughs> he he can afford like six dudes, Charlie. I I, I hate to tell you. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe if you make a flying leap, like yeah. you know, <laughs> when you see a moment, as soon as the security yeah. parts, just go. I'm going to see but Charlie on TMZ looking like <clears throat> Britney Spears trying to say hello to a basketball player. Yeah, but I, I mean, like, but, but I would say, like, in addition to Connor, like, I I have been very fortunate. I mean, Kevin, you and I met each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, roughly around the time when I, I first started White Ash. I may even reached out to you before that. You know, Stephen, I mean, you being in the LA scene, Will, you know, like like Kickstarter is such a community. And I, mm-hmm. and I just say to anyone who's watching, who is um, getting into Kickstarter, who's starting to do it, embrace the people around you. Um, back their books. They are so, you know, like the independent creator scene, they've got each other's back. And they made it very easy for me. To, to enjoy doing this. And, you know, I try to do the same. Um, you know, Ed, it looks like you have some great books. Steven does a wonderful book. So if anyone's watching these, please back both of their books right now. Yeah. Well, I want to ask one more question about your team, and then we are going to get to Monster Matador because I love uh, people. When If you haven't seen the art in Monster Matador, just we're getting there. And you get you just <laughs> give me a second. But there's one person on the team that didn't come up, and I went past it. I'm sorry. Is Nicole, Nicole magic? Is she magic? Because in independent comics, I do not believe there is another editor with more great comic books that she works on. Every book she edits is an A to an A plus. And is she magic? That's what I want to know. Well, I mean, as you can see from her avatar, she looks a little bit like a leprechaun, right? Uh, I mean, so, you know, I, I leave you to be the judge about whether she's magic or not. Um, but but I, I will say this. She's very good at what she does. And as a creator who has a very strong vision, mm-hmm. um, and I have a very clear idea of what I'm doing, you know, I am not going to put up with with mm-hmm. notes that are not useful um mm-hmm. and, and and so i i can say that she's really good at giving useful notes and improving what you do and i think that's that's what you want from an editor is to, to make what you do better and, and she does that i mean and i also you know i adore her as a person so like mm-hmm. there's there's that that's a separate part of it but mm-hmm. i think just like purely on a professional level she's very good at what she does so she, if you're looking for an editor um you know you know, reach out. And you can find Road Trip to Hell too, which is a book she doesn't edit, but writes, uh, which is really funny. pretty darn fabulous too. So Beautiful um, art, really funny. Now, before we get to Monster Matador, I want you to know that Charlie McElvey says that he will fight on your behalf and he is 6'3 and 185 pounds. 
So the first part, he's got reach. He's got reach, and I hope speed. Uh, it sounds like he Kirk just Man, wants a badge Kirk to Man San Diego. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Kirkman's tall. I don't. I don't know anything about. I Kirk think Man, so. I think he's honest. about six six foot or something. He's a big guy. Uh, all right. All right. I mean, so, so am I. So Charlie go high. So am Charlie I like go six low. five, right? You can't yeah. tell. Who's yeah, video. Charlie's. When Charlie's got his stilts on, he's, he's six five. <laughs> Four foot stilts. Um, yeah. All right. So speaking of how how tall Charlie Stigney is, Monster Matador, he fights Kaiju. Yeah. I don't know if that is actually uh, a segue, but we're going with yeah. it. I'm going to pull yeah. it up and. Let, let's let's check out Monster Matador. Where where is our Matador going this chapter? All right. So um, in this new series, uh, it's called Once Upon Some Monsters in Mexico, and the Matador returns home to Mexico after the events of Volume One to be reunited with his daughter. And uh, of course, a, a new monster strikes the Mega Racha in Mexico City, and uh, the Matador. Uh, goes off to fight it. He has to face his greatest fear. He's joined by a team of monster fighting luchadors, which you see here. And it opens up a whole new kind of story in the Matador universe uh, where he's going to kind of uh, go up against uh, these enemies that are the toughest ones he's ever kind of had to before. Um, and it's going to change his world forever. Uh, if the first volume was about building the matter, the matador up and showing everybody what he can do, uh, this is kind of like our empire strikes back. This is really where uh, we're going to kind of break him down, put him through the ringer, and uh, he may or may not come out on the other end. So, so I, I popped up here because I, I saw a name I recognized. Yeah. An off-the-wall, over-the-top, and totally insane monster mashup. Take the kaiju by the horns and order Monster Matador today. David Pippos, Savage Avengers, the OZ. Uh, yeah. I, I wanted to pop. Basically, there's almost nobody. There There might be people as good as David at, at the publicity game, but I don't think there's anybody he's, better. So I, I wanted no, to say he, what he says. Yeah, yeah, he's he's fantastic. And, and I got to tell you, I, I guarantee you by the end of Comic-Con, everybody's going to be talking about Dave Peppos. So. Yeah. Oh, oh, I, I, I like to hear that. That that feels like there might be something said, and I am excited to hear what might be said. He's, I mean, he's, you know, I mean, if, if anybody's been following him, he's just been kicking ass. And, yeah. Uh, so. and, and he's our buddy also Blake... going to be fighting, uh, you know, Kirkman. On my he will. He, he's yeah. that's right. They're gonna be fighting over beards. Their beards, you know. It'd be super interesting. Is Kirkman gonna be there? Like, is he part of the the writers guild now, or what? I, I mean, can he show up? I don't know. Well, he's he, he's gonna if he does it, it's because he's scared of Charlie. Yeah, <laughs> that is that is what we are going to say. So I it's so this is means nothing at all. But I mean. Could he go and say, I want to talk about The Walking Dead, the comic, and then just talk about all the plots that were adapted into the show? Would that, would that skirt the rules or would, that, would he get called on that? I don't know. It doesn't matter at all. But um, the art in this comic book is so unique and so incredible. It, it's, this is the same, the same artist, correct? Yeah, Fabio you... Alves and um, uh, our colorist is Alex uh, Ziaf. And Speaking about, like Charlie said, uh, how to pronounce how to pronounce the names of our. Uh, 
We just take our best guesses on the show. It's collaborators. It's funny. It's funny my, with my guys because I'm mad with Nabruto, so I, I feel no. <laughs> your pain. And I'm pretty um, sure I mangle his name every time I say it. <laughs> that's funny. I, I I didn't know Fabio didn't speak English until we did the third until the third issue we were working on. Oh, he um, just translated to you. I like yeah, you and the, the translation was pretty good, you know. So I, I it never and. Uh, he would sometimes pages, you know, the layouts would come in. I'd be like, this is what the, where are you even getting this from? Like where, and there was one page he sent that had nothing to do with what I wrote. And I was like, we need to talk. And he's like, I don't speak English. (laughs) 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 Well, that makes a whole lot of sense, you know? Uh, So I had to uh, just adapt the way I wrote my scripts because I, I, I tend to write pretty loose in how I talk. Um, and usually you're using, you know, just regular everyday language that doesn't really translate. Yeah. Jargon, uh, jargon is if you're working yeah. with someone where English is not the first language, just yeah, it gets tricky, yeah. I have yeah. messed that up so often. Yeah. I thought um, you were going to say like, I had to learn Spanish to write the rest of my <laughs> scripts. Well, he speaks, he speaks, uh, I, I can, I can do Spanish. He speaks Portuguese. So well, you should do it in Spanish, just just, just for fun. <laughs> you guys can meet in the middle. Just meet in the middle. Yeah. Fun. So, um, and, and this story is kind of fun. We do. Uh, we introduce these characters who, who's this father and son, and uh, they run kind of a, a parallel story uh, into this. And they're trying to save their uh, the wife and mother. Uh, as the as as the monster attacks and their stories uh, kind of intersect with the matador um, in this. So, and right here is is the monster, the Megaracha. Nice. And this is what the the matador is going to have to go up against in in this book. Um, so you mentioned in volume, you know, you said you mentioned volume one. Was it four issues? Is that right? It was uh, three issues of Tango of the Matadors, a 65-page one-shot uh, called Afripocalypse. And then in the, uh, in the trade paperback and hardcover, there's a bonus 10-page story. So this is art have... from uh, – yeah. How many, uh, how many issues will I, – I guess this is volume two. So how many issues so, do you yeah, have so, volume two to go? So volume two will be about four issues. Okay. And then volume three about – be about three to four issues. We've kind of taken the Hellboy model, which is kind of miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can all be read on their own, but at the same time, there's a larger mythology mythology that it'll um, all connect to. Uh, this is our, our Burt Reynolds homage uh, <laughs> variant cover. There's, Burt there's Reynolds a lot of boobs. Always, always welcome yeah. on the show. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of boob covers on Kickstarter, and I just I, I kind of had to go a different direction. <laughs> Uh, I, and we also I, did, it's awesome. And we also did a Ghostbusters uh, homage. <laughs> nice. Uh, so we've got, yeah, the paperback is 184, I think, 188-page collection. Uh, we've got a limited edition hardcover that's signed by myself, Fabio, and Alex. Wow. Uh, we sent the book plates to Mexico, to Brazil. We've got uh, the shot glass, which is in hand. Uh We'll have them in San Diego too. We'll have T-shirts this time. Now, if someone bought the shot glass from you at the show, would it come with 
a special gift that happened to be at the booth. No, if, if, if anything gets given away at the booth in San Diego, it'll get given away with the Kickstarter too. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I, think, uh, I think Kevin conventions don't let you do that. They, uh, they What's that? It's terrible. The um, conventions don't let you. Oh, do I understand. It's, it's awful. Yeah, yeah. Kickstarter doesn't either, though. No alcohol. If you use any word like alcohol, beer, whatever, you'll get flagged and they'll. Because I, I had uh, my first campaign, I had tart pint glasses. And I put, you know, tart pint beer glasses and I got, and they're like, you can't have any alcohol. I'm like, there's not going to be any, I'm not sending liquid through the mail guys. Oh, uh, <laughs> so I, Is so you, right? what? Not, what, it, at the beginning, that was one of the rules, nothing that had to do with alcohol. Now I can't tell you if that's been changed because I haven't put the pint glasses on any longer, not for that reason, but because mm -hmm. I almost lost my ass in shipping that first campaign. <laughs> Thank God only three people bought it because I probably would have gone yeah. bankrupt. That's why I did a shot glass. It's, yeah. it's much, yeah. much lighter. Yeah. On, on that uh, list of taboo words, because I've had several of my campaigns uh, deemed um, no good, <laughs> to, <laughs> like, like put them back in again. Um, you can't say like uh, pre-order. Or, or sales. You can't do anything where you're sort of alluding to the fact that you're selling something on Kickstarter. Uh, because if it actually, and even though that's what the majority of us <clears throat> may be doing, um, pre-orders, <laughs> uh, or, or, or selling books that are done, or, or selling things that we know we're going to make, it, it violates their um, nonprofit status if it's seen as them selling things. So don't ever put pre-orders <laughs> on, 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 you know, in your campaign, because they will flag that. Um, just a little FYI. That's interesting. Well, speaking of Kickstarter, Charlie, um, I know we we chat quite a bit, and you posted a, a link to a story about indie comics on Kickstarter, and the trend is just through the roof. Uh, I mean, it's. Uh, I saw another article, I think. And one of the people were quoted, you know, is the direct market dead and has been a zombie for the last three years and we just didn't notice it because it was being a zombie. I mean, it's Kickstarter really has and, uh, you know, I don't want to just pick on Kickstarter, Kickstarter, other crowdfunding platforms like Crowdfunder and Backerkit and Zoop and, and all of those other guys have really kind of changed the game for us. I mean, it, it's it's made a lot of things possible for a lot of creators that, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing lots of stories from creators that probably wouldn't have had a voice if it weren't for uh, crowdfunding. And right? I'm one of them. Um, I've actually funded 80, 80 Kickstarter projects ish so far. Everything behind me is a book I've printed or mm -hmm. a card game that wouldn't have been printed if it wasn't for Kickstarter just wouldn't exist. <clears throat> Well, I, th I think more than that, too, it's, I mean, I, I think, Charlie, you've mentioned this, I, I think, in your campaigns or elsewhere. Um, and and it's one of the reasons why I went to Kickstarter. If, if, if you've been watching kind of indie launches, uh, they tend to run four issues, six issues, and they mm -hmm. don't come back. You know, a lot of books get cut short. And having, I mean, Charlie, I know, has, has a longer plan for White Ash. Um, you, you kind of roll the dice, you know, um, if you're going with, with a company, if you're going to be able to finish your story. Mm -hmm. uh, but with yeah. Kickstarter, you're rolling the dice on yourself. And if you're successful, you know, you, yeah. you, you can not only 
get to finish your story, but you have a lot more control over uh, how, how you want to tell it and how, and how you get it out there. Um, and I, I, also, I, I think, yeah. No, go, go ahead, Troy. I was going to oh, say, like, I, I, ju I just, oh, like, <laughs> sorry. But I, but I, th <laughs> but I think I, that's I, one of the reasons you're starting to see a lot of, you know, uh, indie books thrive and audiences moving there. Uh, Charlie McElvey, who's watching the show, he's got Spider Squirrel right now. And he's, you know, I, I'm doing an update tomorrow and I call him the Stan Lee of, of Kickstarter because he's building out his own universe of books, which, you know, he wouldn't be able to do that necessarily in the direct market. Mm -hmm. um, but now he can build a brand and build an audience and build a foundation, uh, you know, like Charlie did with, with White Ash and then bring it into the direct market, mm -hmm. you know, and have the best of both worlds. So in, in uh, also a, kick, Kickstarter, you get to build your audience through issues to, well, it really doesn't start until you get third, fourth, fifth installment, yeah. but you, the direct market issue one sells this much issue two sells that much and then three four five six seven and that's for uh a series that's doing well whereas on kickstarter issue one does this issue two does this three four five six if it's a good book you you actually build an audience on kickstarter and and can find new more and and add readers as you go on at this point and that's it's thrilling to be able to do that when the direct market at this point seems to be the opposite yeah charlie would probably be a good person for your the other charlie tall charlie would be a good person <laughs> for your show as well i think uh because he's, he's got a campaign live right now um, well but you know what last week ed sent me a message and said hey you got any room and i said yes and that's how you get on the show people so if you ask answer will probably be yes i had i, I had my people contact you this time uh, having, which is even better having people helps but it is not um it's not uh it's I not true so like well. i said no i thought we can have we can have people why did yeah. i get the memo <laughs> no, i was wondering the same exact thing like oh i thought you had to do it all yourself where it doesn't count yeah. <laughs> I, I will sort of sort of add to Kickstarter though, has been going through an evolution. Um, you know, when it first came, it was doing all kinds of things. Then comic book creators found it. And in the early days, it was people who couldn't get anywhere else, right? You couldn't get a publishing deal. So you came to Kickstarter. And the way the direct market's been going lately, a lot of creators who can get direct market deals would rather be on Kickstarter because they can make more money. And so that there has definitely been in the last two to three years, a shift in terms of the public perception and the industry's perception of, of what Kickstarter is. And it's been continually legitimized by the big companies coming in and now boom and skybound and dynamite, you know, like there's most of the publishers are coming here and making a lot of money. But I think um, when you saw the ad listing for the director of comic outreach going for Kickstarter, you know, you had the industry publications talking about how this was going to be the hottest most important job in comics going forward. And I think like that's a really interesting thing when you have the beat and when you have sketched and, and, and the industry magazines with the pulse are saying, this is important for comics. It's, it's a whole paradigm shift that hadn't happened before. And so um, that combined with the fact that Kickstarter is taking the next step. And, and I know this was something that they were looking to do for a while, but having a booth at San Diego where they can start yeah. hosting creators 
um, you know, they can hopefully start giving some of that convention access to creators who couldn't maybe afford to have a booth at San Diego. And if they do it at New York Comic Con later this year mm-hmm. and, and start, you know, again, democratizing these conventions because Kickstarter is a big enough gorilla that they're going to be able to get in there. And so, you know, giving that space to creators, a way for creators to get in to at least have a table that they can sign at. Um, I, I think there's a big shift that's going on. And, and I know Zoop is doing it too. They have a, they have a table at, um, at uh, San Diego, but like, as, I mean, I'm, I'm signing at the Kickstarter booth, you know, like mm-hmm. they put out a big press release. I didn't have to do that kind of work for myself. They're doing it for creators. So I think they really understand that they are the future of independent comics for a lot of people. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's incredible. And that, that should be, that should be a lot of fun. That should be, that, should, I don't know. I, I, I want you to, I, at least share on, on Twitter or Facebook or, or uh, Dweezil Bob or whatever the social media we're on next week, um, how that feels. Like, do you feel like another, it's another day at a con? Do you feel real? I'd lo- I, I can't wait to hear how that feels signing at the Kickstarter booth. Yeah, I, I, I will probably tweet it out. I feel much cooler than Kevin Joseph because I'm right here <laughs> signing at the Kickstarter booth right now. He wanted uh, you, me to tweet out a selfie, so here you go. And and you will be, <laughs> and I will have to just retweet that with yeah. Uh, it's yeah. it's yeah. That, no, that's I, that's like, not a situation that I can win this weekend. <laughs> but but I, I, I kid Kevin because um, you know going back to the whole communal aspect of Kickstarter, Kevin was really instrumental in in me sort of getting uh, a start in a lot of different things. So you know I, I I really appreciate him and so many other creators who have helped each other out on Kickstarter. And I love that Kickstarter is, is expanding what they do. And so hopefully, you know, we can all embrace each other and pick each other up in different places. Uh, yep. I, I, I I like to dig at you because everybody likes you and there's a reason everybody likes you. So uh, that's the reason I've got to hit you and Clay Adams every t- chance I can get because you're just so <laughs> damn likable uh, that I, I got to attack you. I don't have this issue. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe next time, Ed. I just met you. I haven't fallen in love yet, but I do have a crush. <laughs> and he well, gives big hugs. Yes. Yeah. Before before we get out of here, and I, and I I I do want to actually continue that Kickstarter thing. But um, our buddy uh, John Westoff is doing a campaign for issue four of Drum Six of Doom, and uh, Will and I have found that the time we can do this show is very very late, and not everyone can join us. And I just wanted to share Drumsticks of Doom pretty quickly um, because it's a book that's worth checking out. I think worth backing, but definitely worth checking out. Um, it is basically a retelling of the history of the earth. If instead of the Beatles becoming the biggest band of all time, it's Judas Priest. And <laughs> the sheer power of their rock and roll actually changes the fabric of reality and kind of brings demons into reality. Uh, and John's just a hilarious, cool dude. And I just wanted to make sure because he can't, he's not going to join us this late at night and it's, will and i's fault that it's this late um (laughs) so i just wanted to share the campaign and say if you like rock and roll uh and demons and just uh humor uh check this campaign campaign out he's got 1200 to go and 
uh, five days. So it is so doable, but I wanted to make sure people uh, checked out Drum Six of Doom and you can get all four issues in it. And uh, so don't sleep on this one, guys. All right. Awesome. So um, I, I will say Ed, that, that point of it being not too late, it's, it's very convenient for, for, at least for me, I don't want to speak for Steven, the time that you guys do it because the kids are asleep. It's not too late. So keep it. At, no, this is like the best. <laughs> Ed, I know it's very convenient for you as well. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the kids are the, the kids asleep, you know, the, the entire neighborhood's asleep. I, I get yeah. to eat a long at 3 a.m. So, so Ed, Ed, yeah, Ed sent me a message. He's like, Hey, you know, do, do you have a spot? And I, I looked at it. I'm like, Yeah, I got a, I got a spot. And so I, I, we had ju just met. So I went to his Facebook page to friend him so that we could message each other more e easily. And I, I saw England and I, I said, I'm like, Hey, Love to have you, but ninety nine point nine percent of the people from Europe ditch me when I tell them what time. And he's like, "No, I'll get up. I'll be there." So, um, God bless you, man. That is that's 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 commitment to the bit right there. Oh uh, well, you see, you see, the thing is that we English we're so small in number relative to you. We have no choice but to ensure we're represented on this kind of show, right? <laughs> so we all go the extra mile so that the small number of us, you know, so that we appear. I'm very disappointed in that 99.9% .9 of other, other, well, any of them who are English anyway. Yeah, uh, they, they might be from the bad European countries. I'll let you yes. say what they are. I'm not saying. <laughs> but I'll tell, but no I will say European this. Countries I, at all. They're all great. I just want to say life. this. My artist is French, so don't you mess with France. Oh, well, uh, yeah, and that would be my go-to being English, yeah. right? So <laughs> they're all great. They're all great in their own way. They have their own character and they're all awesome. Yeah. But if they can't get up for this show, yeah. they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, a quick question for kind of everyone here around shipping. I know Charlie does some really cool stuff with shipping around White Ash with the White Ash boxes. I mean, those are spectacular. Uh, Steven, uh, you've, uh, you know, you've done some hardcovers, you've done, you know, single issues and Ed, you've done 80 campaigns. I mean, <laughs> from a, from a standpoint of fulfillment, you know, you're, you're in England. Do you, yeah. are, are most of your shipments <laughs> in England? Do you have a lot nope. of people from the USA? Mo it's most of them are in the US. Wow. That's. Uh, in fact, I ended up having to ship 6.6 .6 kilograms that's uh, Ooh, ooh uh, um, 14 15 pounds of books um to some people uh for one of my recent campaigns that gets pricey <laughs> that gets pricey yeah i that's gotta I be imagine right. so um, i mean i know uh, uh so, charlie you so an interesting charlie... point on the on that front <clears throat> My experience is that most people will pay something like 20% of what the pledge was for shipping without having too much of a problem. Once you're going much more than that, you start ending up in, in, in problems where they're going, whoa, really? Whoa, that's really, really expensive. Yeah. Um, and as a result, you know, you gotta, you got to figure out a way of doing it. Um, I tried a fulfillment service and they were charlatans. Um, who did half the amount of work I did for the same price. Um, 
I I have I'm very fortunate in that one of my my longtime partners in 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 this is uh, based in the US. So what I do okay. is I send a big box, send a big box over to him. He then sends it out from there. So that sort of gets around it. You know, it, it does cost. It costs like, I don't know, 50, 60, 70, uh, $100 maybe um, to get that box over there. But once it's there, he can then send it out relatively cheaply via, via the, the system mm-hmm. you guys have in the US. <clears throat> well, and Charlie, I know you you uh, clued you know a bunch of us into that pirate ship um, simple uh, international export, right? shipping. Yeah, the export rate, which was like half. I mean, I that alone saved me in the last you know two or three campaigns probably hundreds of dollars in shipping it's, it's, you know internationally. It's really good until you go over three pounds fifteen point yes. nine mm-hmm. ounces. Uh, it's, it's, it's a service over here and they don't, they don't have it, uh, in England, but it's, um, basically like, um, they group ship a bunch of things to a different country and then they have a fulfillment service that sends it out. So compared sort to the regular, to what I'm doing manually. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's, but it's a legitimate company versus mm. the, you know, the charlatans that you had. And, um, like if you're a Kickstarter creator and you're not using them for international, sh- uh, shipping, I, I, th- I think you're, you're probably shorting yourself. Um, I mean, Stephen, do you use Pirate Ship as well? Um, for international, yeah. 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 So, yeah. what do you use domestically? Then? The export, yeah. I just do Andesha. I mean, okay. I, I should shift it over, but I was already paying for Andesha, and then on I the mean, last one, I used I used Pirate Ship uh, for international. It's just um, the only thing Andesha has that great, Pirate yeah. Ship doesn't is the uh, first class, right? Yeah, I, I shipped a lot in first class. That's why. Okay, I, I mean, I I used to have Indicia, but it's still still sixteen dollars a month, right? I know. Yeah, and I I keep forgetting to cancel it, so I feel like I have to use it. But <laughs> oh yeah, I I, I I had about two. So, I had, so that's I, why I kind of like was going between the two. I think um, I had no, three like, campaigns well, that way before I finally did pirate ship because I was like, yeah, Screw it. I, I paid the last six months and didn't use it. Now I have to get my money's worth. So yeah, I've been there and I've done that. Yeah. Yeah. They but, get, but like, I mean, there's so many things that you subscribe to. I'm just yeah. like, Oh shit. I forgot. That's still you know, charging. I was going to say, um, Ed, it's speaking of, Oh, sorry, Sean. I was just going to say, I think it's even more like if you're not using a service, it's even more expensive over here to ship to Europe than it is to ship from Europe. Um, cause I, cause I think if, if you're using like just standard domestic, it's like 60 bucks for a three pound package mm-hmm. yeah, it's to go to England, which is nuts. Yeah. What's really fun is when you go over four pounds, trying to figure out how to get yeah. it. So you're unpacking it. Now you're taking <laughs> out like, okay, I used can newspaper I, I, this time. Can I tell you, I, you know how, like, you know, they have tabs sometimes on the side I've ripped off tabs. I've ripped off like lining in the thing. I've done like just to get ounces, ounces. Yeah, know? I pull, I pulled the, the Gemini mailer, the middle part. I've cut that out yeah. to try to get down. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I've done stuff. You know, I, I rip pages out of the book. It's not kidding. I don't. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I wanted I to talk that. to you about that. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> Most people hardly notice. <laughs> Just the back pages. They never get there. Yeah. I do, I've got a question. Does that mean that you write so well that pages could be missing and the story still told? Or do you write yeah, so yeah, badly yeah. that people don't notice pages are gone? It's probably somewhere in between. <laughs> this is a well, great cliffhanger. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, the, th the things we do to just try to stay yeah. stay ahead of the game i mean i really yeah. have unpacked things and I've, I've had it bubble wrapped and i've taken like 30, 70 percent of the bubble wrap off and then you reweigh it and you're still not there and you're okay well I, every one of my books was bagged and bored and then you take you know like you double you double bag and board double them, so front can, back them so you can pull yeah. out like four bags <laughs> yeah, yeah, and boards yeah, yeah. Yeah. and those things are like less than an ounce so it's tough it's yeah. but it's fun it's I don't, it's not fun, but it's sort of fun to think back later, like what no, you just did. but it's literally an ounce can be the difference sometimes of like five bucks, depending on where you're going over. I mean, or more mm -hmm. than that. It's, it's kind of nuts. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know the, uh, the 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 pirate ship simple export rate is awesome. And thanks again, Charlie. That that seriously has saved me tons and mm -hmm. tons of money. But uh, I've, from a domestic standpoint, you know, shipping in the U.S. I I am a big fan of the integration that ShipStation has with BackerKit because I can just click a button, it'll go create all those packages, and then once I print the labels, I click refresh in BackerKit and it says, "Oh, those guys are all shipped, done." And I'm like, "Awesome! It's just it's magic. I love it so much." <laughs> I handwrite everything because I'm a masochist. Oh, wow. <sighs> You are indeed, sir. Indeed. Okay, so so the biggest reason I was happy to pay fifteen ninety five a month for Indicia was to no longer have to handwrite the export uh, the customs forms, because yes. writing five pages of the custom forms over and over and over again, and I have terrible handwriting. So in it's, this country, we just have a label about this size, and you have to write your name and and your address. And how much how much it's worth and that's it okay so the way it works in the united states is there's five pages you have to give blood semen and feces <laughs> you have, oh it wait. is you forgot torture. the note from your mom you need a note yes. from your mom too <laughs> yes. it is absolute torture to handwrite those things it is insane it's yeah. it's three three to five minutes for every form and so if you if you've got like 25 things and then you take it to the post office and you walk in and you're like one of like three people and you walk up to the clerk and you've got like 12, you know, international yeah, packages. <laughs> and then the clerk looks at you and the packages realizes they're all international. And by the time you leave, there's, I mean, honestly, 15 12, to 25 15, people behind you. Yeah. So, and, and your neck is burning because they're just staring yeah. at you. You don't look yeah. back. And as you walk uh, out, you walk with your head down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in this country, um, uh, the, because the customs labels, right? So you can do them at the same speed as they can do proof of postage. Hmm. So they'll like type in the first line of the address and the, and the, and the zip code or whatever to go to the US. And, and, and they'll print that on the receipt for you so you can prove you posted it. That way it's insured, blah, blah, blah. Cool. Awesome. I've walked in with 40 packages before and had the clerk look at me and go, I'm, I'm not doing that. And I literally had them call me, you're, you're seriously, you're refusing me service right now. That's, that's what's going on. 
the manager came out and was like, no, 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 it's fine. I'll, I'll do it. Um, like, like that has happened to me. Like someone has literally just gone, I'm, I'm not doing that. So over here, the clerk just looks at you and them is like, I just do this the next half hour and doesn't yeah. hurt. They're just like, they, they don't care because, you know, there's a term here called going postal. We're yeah. all very nice to postmen now. Yeah. They can do whatever they want. We are all super polite and patient with our post office. The worst though is I when mean, you're in uh, line. Oh, uh, sorry. No, uh, I was going to say, you're in line, the person in front of you, like they're like twice your age, but it's like the first time they've ever been to a post office. You know? <laughs> and they take their package off. They, they don't have anything written on the box. They don't even have a box. And they hand the thing and the post office like, no, you need a box and you need to write the address on there. And they start yelling at the postal clerk, like, oh, why do I need to put it in a box? Why do I need to write an address on it? And then they stand there like doing it. Yeah, they're, they're trying to mail batteries in gasoline yeah. in a ziplock. <laughs> They've written the name on the ziplock. Like, why do I stuff. have to why do I have to pay for it? So this is, you know, this is the ad for Dynamo label printers. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, you drop it off, you, you leave. Although some people say you can schedule it. This never worked for me, but just dropping it is is beautiful. So I, I, I uh, literally go to my post office and I have a, um, I get this actually going back to David Pepos. This was his idea. I have a laundry cart, like one of the ones that they have at, um, you know, hotels that unfolds. And so it's like a gigantic laundry cart. And so I will fill it with you know 60 70 80 packages sometimes 120 packages all done i go in i just sort of give the signal to the guys i know and then they're like happy to take a break they come out to the side door they wheel my cart into the back three minutes later they bring me my cart back all done it's that's um, nice yeah. <laughs> yeah it's so like ed like i i appreciate that that loving touch that you're giving to all of those packages, no. but at some point it, it just might be worth your sanity. Unless, unless like that's what gets you I, going or wakes you, you up. You know, it's, it's funny actually, because I, I don't write very much at all. Like I almost never pick up a pencil. Right. Um, I, I, I'm a project manager. I spend all my day typing emails. I obviously type on my computer. I very seldom pick up and write anything anymore. And I actually quite enjoy the physical sensation of doing it, right? Like, I wouldn't want to do it all day, every day. But to do it for 100-odd packages or, or whatever, uh, especially given that, you know, I, I try and restrict myself to 20 or so and go over a period of days instead, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I actually find it quite pleasurable. Like, like you know, actually, I, don't, I just don't do it very often. Mm -hmm. I just find the, t find the tactile sense of, of writing an address. Yeah. I just like it. Cool. Very cool. I mean, look, I, we, 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 I'm like chiseling. That, that said, I wouldn't like to fill out five pages of custom forms for every single pack. No, no. Because like, <laughs> like, 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 we literally right? have to list like the weight and the, of the each individual of item. Each individual yeah. item. It has a, a destination code, like a tax code Price. that you have to put on it that you have to yeah. look up. Yeah. Um, no. it's, uh, it's complicated. No, it's, it's, it ain't great. <clears throat> All right, so, but we do love our U.S. Postal Service because, yes. uh, I, I, you know, honestly, we joked about it. I've had very, very few packages lost or stolen of I, the 
hundreds I mean, or thousands of packages I've sent. Right? Uh, the the uh, I'm not going to name their company because they might they might come after me. I don't know. But um, uh, they're a very popular fulfillment service here in the UK for um, games of all sorts, board games, role-playing games, and so on. I didn't use them for comics. Um, but what happened is suddenly one-third of all packages went missing. Wow. And then, like, like wow. I'm used to, like, maybe one or two in a hundred go missing. And suddenly mm-hmm. I'm like, 20, 30 of these went missing. I'm like, pardon? Okay. Well, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We didn't. We didn't get any proof of postage. That that takes too long. We're not doing that. I was like, and I'm paying you how much? And you send them second class for that amount of money with no proof of postage, no insurance. Mm. Screw you guys. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll do it myself. Like, like seriously. Yeah. And, and it was just, I was just like, what? How can, <laughs> how can 20, 30% go missing? Uh, because yeah, like, like you, like, like, uh, I, I don't tend to send things tracked because it's really expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, normally I just have the odd one go missing. I'm like, yeah, d- don't worry. I got a few spares for sale at convention or whatever. It's fine. I'll, I'll send you another one. No problem. Uh, I mean, I've got 150 titles, so I've got a few spares of everything rather mm-hmm. than lots, lots, and lots of spares of most things. Right. Some things I do. Most I don't. <laughs> Well, hey, before we before we go, uh, I do have a quick question for Charlie. I know you've been on the picket line, and I'm just, uh, I'm, how how's it going? I mean, you know, well, we we we're not out there, we're not on the line with you, but we got your backs. So, <laughs> well, I I've been out there a couple of days. I would like to be more, but um, I I don't know for if any of you find this, but sometimes when you are, your job is writer, that also means during the summer your job is childcare. <laughs> when the kids aren't in school. So, so I don't have the, you know, like the, now that school has been out, I haven't had the time to be on the picket line as much as I would like. So I, I have been there. Um, I know today there was a huge influx of people coming out where, where SAG joined the actors. Uh, I mean, joined, joined the writers. I think um, I'm going to cross my fingers that that's going to help speed things along. I think you know the United States is in this this big labor movement right now because it's not about money. Like it, it's for anyone who's watching this, it's like here's the crazy thing. Um, you know the studios. You know like the writers came to the studios with a series of requests for the for the contracts. If the studios had given into you know like just basically said okay we'll give you everything, they would have saved themselves at this point about five hundred million dollars. Um, they are losing over 30 to $40 million a day by holding out. And, you know, the same thing is going to get even worse for, um, when, when, you know, the actors, uh, you know, that the actors have joined and it's more about the principle and that big corporations don't being like being told what to do. Yeah, go ahead. Um, As someone across the pond, obviously I've only heard like fairly biased, you know, uh, uh, reporting on this. I'd really like to know what what you think it as, as someone who's been on the picket line. I'd like to hear from you what you think it's about. Oh sure, sure. Like so, uh, like, it like, depends. What is... well, like what what's the strike about? Like, yeah. like what, what's what, the what, the, what the, are you like, so, so the, the from core issue are, are are two things for the writers, and it's two very similar things for the actors. Um, you know, like there's there's lots of little things, but they don't matter. There are two big things that matter. Um, the the first thing for the writers and for the actors is, you know, if you go back to like 2007, which was the last time the writers went on strike, 
it was because there was this new thing that was coming out called streaming. And the studio said, you know, like, hey, let's just do this under this old contract where you get almost nothing for it because streaming is not going to be a big source of our revenue. We're only going to use it for advertising to drive people back to broadcast television. And the writers who were a little bit, had a little bit of foresight said, no, <laughs> like this is going to be a new paradigm shift. And so that's what the strike happened, you know, happened about last time. And unfortunately then the rest of the town, like the actors, the teamsters, everyone just wanted to get back to work and thought the writers were being greedy because streaming was not a thing then. the strike ended, you know, the, the writers got a little bit of a residual better than what they were being offered, but not still not great. And um, one month later, Hulu came out, which means Hulu had been in negotiation for a year at least with the studios creating these deals. So they were, again, being disingenuous with their negotiating. Um, so like that's just context. So like what we're at right now is th what the writers would like more than anything else, um, you know, first and foremost, is a residual, which, you know, for people who don't know what residuals are, and I'm assuming everyone here does, but it's basically payment that you get when something streams and how it used to be in, in broadcast television was every time something aired, you know, you as the creator of the show or the writer of the episode got a little something, right? And so the more times it aired, the more money you got. That doesn't happen in streaming. It's a flat fee um, and there's, there's very little residuals. And so if you have a, a, a show that's the biggest, like Squid Games, I don't know if you watch Squid Games, Ed, or, or heard about that. And, I didn't, but I heard of it. You, you heard of it. So like, th think of anything, like the, like the biggest shows. If you wrote a show that was watched by 90 million viewers, it, you would get, you know, stream 90 million times, 100 million times. You would get the same amount of money as a show that might have been watched by two people. Um, and so it's, you know, like, and, and these are the shows that are driving the revenue, that the stocks are going up. So it, the writers want, and the actors also want this too, they want uh, compensation. Um, uh, famously, Scarlett Johansson got hit by the the streaming thing, right? Right, right. Like everyone's like, pe people want basically they want a fair share, right? Like if you create something, you want a piece of it that's tied to how it does, right? And so, like, which which is very simple. Yeah, um, no, it's not complicated, is it? <laughs> unfortunately, and and this is the thing that that people don't understand: streaming. A lot of people think that streaming is not profitable at all. And where the revenue is coming from is just from, P from the stock market. And so there has to be a perception of profitability that's associated with it, bringing in new subscribers. So the stock prices keep going up. So the dividends going up. So the companies are making more money. But the actual revenue model that's associated with streaming is not that profitable. And in fact, the numbers might be low. And so the studios, the streamers don't want to give up those numbers because that could actually cost them billions of dollars in stock prices if the truth got out. So like, that's where there's the rub, like either it's really profitable and we want to share in it or, you know, let us know. So we stop asking for the money, but if they let us know that it's going to kill the company. So that's a huge impasse. The other thing is, you know, AI, right. And, and because that's the next great technology and the writers and the actors are both trying to set guidelines. And for an example of what the, the studios offered the actors was, and they called this their groundbreaking offer they were willing to pay like a background extra for like half a day so they could scan them and use them in the background everywhere and have the rights to their likeness in perpetuity. 
Um, and like that was their really good offer that they were giving to the actors because they were saying, we can probably just do it without the actor, but we'll pay you a little something. So we're giving you that offer. Um, we're already at a point with the technology where they could bring in a voiceover actor and have them you know, do two days worth of acting and be able to use them for the next 10 years in a cartoon. Right. Yeah. And have the computer modulate the voices. So like it's and the for the, that's just for the actors, like that's the entire thing for the writers. It's something different. And it comes down to copyright. And, you know, it's like, like you know, as a writer, like the copyright, the, the originator of the idea, that's the important thing. Um, and what the studios would like to do is they would like to be able to basically use AI to say, what's a AI hit movie? AI write it and get the writers to edit it. Edit it. And by edit it, mean make it actually good, right? Like, yeah. like <laughs> if, if they have, you know, like if they have like a one page outline for something, that they bring a writer in to write, it's a different rate versus if yeah. the writer came in and then the residuals are structured. So basically, you know, like now you're bringing in writers for two weeks at a time to write, you know, like to do punch up work on something versus, you know, this, this big contract, you have no, you know, credit on it. So like for the studios, it comes down to, and I think a lot of these things, like it's the companies don't think like big corporations think of themselves as the things that create the cars, right? Or, or whatever it is, you know, there are workers that use the pieces, but the company makes these things, right? And you have a lot of tech people and other people from other industries who have come into the film industry and invested a lot of money and have that mentality where the film industry for a for hundred years was about artists and producers who ended up becoming studio heads who were all having that shared vision for creating these things. And so now you have the corporations coming in and trying to dictate, you know, art and don't really like that here's an industry where the people are saying no um, because there's not many uh, American industries that are unionized that unionized have this kind of strength that, anymore. Yeah. Right? And, and, and so here's a very articulate group of individuals and um, who a lot of them, I mean, like some of them have a lot of money. And when you roll in the actors, you have a huge PR team. And so like it's actually if people are working together, like the actors and writers together, that's a really strong group that even if you were a multi-billion dollar corporation, you should be a little wary about taking on because you're going to lose the press battle. You know, like you're going to lose, um, you know, what, what, you know, just like just the narrative, like the writers are going to write the narrative and it's not going to work for you. So at the right, end of the day, it's about, on strike, so they aren't going to be writing it for you. Right, right. And it's about <laughs> attrition. And like, I mean, like, and you even see things like there's been so many bad PR moves already by the studios. And one of the worst came out, I think this was about three days before the actors went on strike, so like five days ago, where there was some quote from some studio head that said, you know, like they were, they were anticipating the actors were going to sign. And they're like, we're not even going to start engaging with the writers until late in the fall, until we know they've run out of money and some of them have lost their homes and we figure that um, at that point they'll be desperate and willing to take any deal that we give them. Like this was a studio head that went on record saying this yeah. to, it's, you know, like they said it anonymously, it's, it's, it's but like that they put out that, you know, like, and all that did was galvanize the union anymore because now it's not just about a, a wage thing. It's, it's very personal, you know, like there, and like, it's not just the writers, right. And it's not just the actors. There's all the people who want to work on these movies who, you know, their livelihood is being affected by it too. And again, mm -hmm. if it was about money, this would have been over, you know, before it started because they could have just said yes to everything. 
it was, you know, it was, it was basically the writer's proposals came to about $450,000 million over the course of the contract, which is nothing, right? You know, like three C, you know, three of the heads of the different studios. To make maybe to Will. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But but like so it's like I, I don't know if it well, does that nothing relative are, to what you said they've already lost. So you know, yeah, it's it, it, it's it's a drop in the bucket compared to what they're lost compared to what they're losing going forward. Um, does does that make sense? I mean, did you want? Does it that... does. Yeah. No. And and thank you for taking the time to explain that. I think it's really important that an audience around the world, because the the thing is right, what we get is corporate media. That, yeah. that's what we get we yeah, we get people who are more or less on the side of the corporations explaining this and they're not giving uh they're not giving your side now i am far too far away from this and not in anywhere near involved in in this industry i am very very indie uh this this aspect of the industry i should say i'm very very indie um and i i maybe your maybe your view is slightly biased i can definitely see the problems as a creator I can definitely see the problems you're you're talking about, but uh, it's the first time I've heard that side. I've only ever heard the other side, yeah. which is ah, oh, they just want more money for everything they're doing, blah blah blah. In, and in, obviously, I know as a creator that that's complete horseshit. But right. I don't know what Char Charlie's in the thick of it, and I am not. Um, one of the salient points that really worked for me is these contracts with the writers specifically. Are, are based on per episode for shows. Mm. And um, when a season, you would work for eight months on a season and there would be 22 to 26 episodes, the prices paid to these writers were really good, really set you up quite well. And you'd have three months to find a new job and that's great. Whereas in streaming, you work for the same seven to eight months and there's six to 10 episodes and they're paying by episode. So when, when you really look at, if you're getting the same amount per episode and you used to get 22 to 26 episodes to work on a series, this is and now you're getting six to eight. Because here six to eight is the norm, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's uncommon to have many more than 10 episodes in a season. Like I grew up on Star Trek, right? right. So, you know, 24, 26 episodes in a season. Yeah, very, very common. Here, like like you you will you'll get a yeah. season and it'll be like 10 episodes or 12 maybe. And you're you're only allowed two series, right? John Cleese made that and no one's allowed to do a third series ever. Who's right? had a couple more? <laughs> yeah. I think the other <clears throat> thing with that Ed is is that um, it's not just about the number of episodes. Um People often are on an exclusive contract, mm, right? Yeah, and and yeah. so you know, like it's like, I, and maybe this is probably different because you guys have been doing that for so long, and it's kind of baked in. Like this was a rapid shift in the way things were done, without taking a lot of time to think about how things were changing, right? And so it used to be you're like you'd sign an exclusive contract because they might want you for the second season for a show. But all of a sudden, you know, like, especially if, because it's not everyone's paid by episode. Some people are paid by weeks, right? And especially the lower level staff, but you're still on exclusive contract. Mm. So rather than working for 50 weeks at, you know, three grand a year, which was a decent, you know, very decent salary, maybe now you've worked for, for 10 weeks, 10. Yeah. for 10 weeks, $30,000, you know, when you take away the fees, it's almost nothing in LA, yeah. right? And now you're, 
under exclusive contract and you're waiting for them to renew this show, you know, you and might be stuck. You, you can't, you can't, you can't get another job because you're under an exclusive contract. There's a short writer's room. So like there's a lot of different dynamics that are a play that they didn't take the time to think about how can we do this better, you know, for this new paradigm. And they're refusing to engage with it being a new par- admitting that it's a new paradigm because they don't want to go back. Um, because honestly, like the old broadcast method, which they've killed, um, for television, was the most lucrative model of entertainment that's ever been created. Um, and it was, it was so smart because you, you had these upfronts, which were like, we have ads, right? And so like the American shows would have the commercials. So at the beginning of the season, they would sell ad space for all the shows. The more popular shows, the ads would be more expensive, right? And so you would do this and you could produce your shows and, you know, until those, you know, things evened out you um you know you kept the series going right as long as there was enough money coming in but then we used to have something called syndication and you probably have it here too but you know like there were little broadcast hubs in every single state and some states had three to four of them or five or if it was california maybe 20 right because it's so big and each of those would go to a thing and be able to bid on the rights to be able to have syndication and that's all been killed by streaming because you know, like now Netflix has the yeah. rights to Air Friends, and Disney so like that's one Disney hands on to its own stuff, right? No, right, no one's right. going to be, no one's bidding right. for syndication on, right? Yeah, and and so like those syndication reruns were huge for the companies because they would, you know, like they used to call. There's actually a model that's called deficit financing, right? Where you're trying to find the one big thing, the Seinfeld, that's going to bring in a couple of billion dollars that will fund thirty different series that you can take in a shot on. And so like that's what they were doing and they're making money hand over fist and writers were making money and art actors were making money because when you know like they get those licensing fees, yeah. everyone would get a piece of the pie. And they didn't reconfigure for the new paradigm. And that's you know like what this like let's have the conversation. Well, let's figure that out obviously how to make means the company is hoovering up all the money that is coming in. Yeah. Yeah, uh, which and, obviously and, the company wants because companies are companies, right? Right, but but like, but the, the 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 big problem with this is this is a product that companies can't make without these people, right? You can't just mm-hmm. make another car, you know, keep making cars because you like they need people, and that's what the other reason why they want to have the AI, because if they could magically get rid of these people, they wouldn't <laughs> be dependent on the people who are negotiating. My, with them, but they still my company has recently asked uh, the head of development to look into can we use AI to write code? Mm-hmm. Um, he and, was talking and, to me about it. And, no, um, I, saw, I saw Terminator. That works great. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's usually yeah. brilliant. Yeah. I mean, the thing about AI, in my experience, is you've got about a 50% chance of something that's, that's fine, and you've got about a 50% chance of something that on a cursory glance looks okay and is complete bullshit. Like, mm-hmm. like just makes no sense whatsoever. Well, and, and that's true in code, it's true in, it's true in chat GPT or what, whatever else. Well, and, and here was, I, I listened to, I don't know if there's a, there's a podcast called Hard Fork, which, which is mm. really great. It's like a tech you know, podcast. I think it came out from the New York Times. And they were talking about like with the chat GPT and the evolutions of things that are going on. Here's the problem is that like on the internet now, they were saying like roughly 20% of all the stuff that's on there is now generated by AI, mm. which is kind of crazy to think about. Well, the problem is... The, the new models of chat GPT are being trained by scraping the internet. Yeah. So they're being trained by AI. And over the course of time, you know, it's a copy of a copy of it's a copy. And as more AI content comes on, 
it becomes harder for it to find the things, you know, to, to find out what's good and what's bad. And, and so like it's, it's watering itself down. And so like that, that is an inherent problem with AI is that you need constant input of, of new sources that's clean, right? And so like, that's what I worry about with the coding. I mean, with writing at some, you know, like that's going to be a real problem. Um, well, and, and I've, I've heard them described, I've, I've heard the current AI described as something like a stochastic parrot and giant um, copyright infringement machines. Yeah. Is basically what they are. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the, the copyright infringement, uh, I've got um, one on my team, uh, most does logos for me. He's been looking into, can he get like AI art and then build on it and, and improve it and, and make it more unique? And the copyright around around that stuff just becomes really problematic. Well, and, and that's like the thing that the studio should also realize that they might not own the copyright to the shows and the movies they create if the initial, you know, gen, uh, but it's crazy. And like what, what the writers, what we were asking for was to put some guidelines in place to basically say the initial idea can't come from AI, right? That, that you can use it as like find a way that you can use it as a tool because it's going to be used. Mm -hmm. But let's just sort of say you can't do this. And the studios were not willing to engage. What they, their counter proposal was they were willing to have a meeting about this every one year to discuss changes in the AI industry. Um, and as we all know, if you have a five-year contract with no parameters in place and the only parameter you have is a scheduled conversation, you aren't getting anything, right? So, yeah, that's like that. That's... Well well, luckily, we solved this problem. I think that uh, the contract's going to be signed tomorrow. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, it's early in England. is is late for me. So uh, I did have a blast listening to this, but it is rude when the host falls asleep on the show. Not because you're boring, because these dogs had me up at 6 a.m. and I have, I've been up all day. I love you guys. Ed, it was great to meet you. Stephen and Charlie, mm -hmm. it's always a blast to get to talk to you. And mm -hmm. Will, thank you for fixing the computer and getting on the show. I try, man. I try. <laughs> All right. I guess, guys, support support your writers, support your actors, um, mm -hmm. and support uh, your kickstarters. Yeah, I was about to say, it, Monster Matador, Lobo. <laughs> I slept my way through college and the tales from freshman year. Yeah, that's that. That's the way to do it. That's yeah. If you want ScarJo to sleep better, make sure and back every Kickstarter campaign for comics you see. And have a wonderful week. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. <laughs>